There's Mr. Barclay. Hello. Hey, everybody's Hello, here. Hello, sir. Hey, everybody. Now, whose idea was it to do this on a holiday? I know. Mine. Yeah. Although I didn't think it was a holiday at the time of booking, because I booked a month ago. <laughs> I can't think that far ahead. I didn't know it was a holiday until people started saying, have a good long weekend. It's so like, what? But, yeah, really. What holiday is it for you? Family Day. Family Day. Oh, it's because it's President's Day here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what? Uh, okay, but let's just be honest. Family Day, that is so freaking made up. Oh, totally. 100%. Yeah, totally. Yeah, That's exactly what it is. Family Day, they couldn't come up with something... Just they couldn't because no. we've got days for everything else already. We needed a family day. Yeah. That's right. And we literally. Hey, and you know what? You know what's going on in my house right now, Liz? My what? my brother-in-law's here. He's got board games out. We're all sitting around the dining room table. My wife, me, the kids, and uh, yeah, and I'm recording a podcast. Thanks. Oh, wow. <laughs> you did not the show. <laughs> Go spend time with your family. No, it's okay. <laughs> I don't like that game. Oh my God, you are <laughs> exactly gave you an excuse out. Let's be honest. We are right. we are robbing Steve of his cherished family, family day. I know. That's right. Trust his me, most sacred let... Canadian holiday. His Trust wife will never let year. us live it down. No, that's the uh, finals for the Stanley Cup. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even officially a holiday. I don't know why not. Trust me, if Should they were be. sitting on the couch doing shots of whiskey, he would not be here. That's true. He'd, he'd be like, sorry, guys, I can't record the podcast. I forgot. <laughs> but they're playing a lame board game. He's like, yeah, here, I, I got to go do the podcast. Uh, I'd love to, <laughs> love to play Settlers of Catan, but. He's probably got his whiskey in front of him anyway. That's true. I do. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Recording in progress. Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. Uh, hey, this is, of course, the podcast where we talk with advocates and members of the disability community to educate and inspire better conversation about disability. Hey, my name is Rob Minot, and joining me today, the hardest working man on family day, Mr. Ryan Flurry. Hello, everyone. And of course, joining me as usual, straight from his living room in his pajamas, Mr. Steve Barkley. Hey, I dressed up. I put sweats on. <laughs> oh, good. Excellent. Fancy. Man, damn. Well, if you were wearing pants, sir, I would say you went <laughs> a long weekend wrong. Uh, and hey, look who it is. Our backbone, our spine, our brains of the operation. Liz Malone. I prefer tailbone, but greetings, everybody. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't that long ago you said she was bringing up the rear, right? I'm always bringing up the rear. Well, listen, I, I felt bad about that. So yeah. I, yeah, just I, pipe down tailbone. <laughs> That's coccyx to you. <laughs> and the podcast has gone off already. <laughs> It'll be a great episode. Hey, Ryan, speaking of great episodes and great segues, uh, what the heck are we doing today and who are we talking to? Today, we are speaking with Dr. Mona Mankara, who is an assistant professor of bioengineering at Northeastern University and also an ambassador for an organization called Astro Access. Woohoo! <laughs> Hello, everyone. Astro Access. Hello, Hello and welcome. Yes, okay. thanks for joining us. I, I so I okay. There's so there's a bunch of stuff I have to say. So, so many questions. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to talk to you for sure. And I'm very excited to talk about Astro Access. I, I read your bio <laughs> and what you do, and I understand none of it. And none of it, 0.0. So, I, but we'll get to that. We will get to that. So my name is Mona Mankara. I am a professor at Northeastern University in bioengineering. I got my doctorate in computational chemistry, which means I computationally model chemical systems. And the one that I'm really interested in and I've been studying now starting in 2019, before the pandemic happened, was pulmonary surfactant, which is a substance found at the air, air liquid interface in the lungs. It allows us to breathe. I am just like, I call myself a molecular detective. That's what I like to say. That nice. I I go and I want to understand how do molecules interact with one another and one another. How are these? How are the different components working together? What can we learn? What can we take to apply to like real world applications? So that's what I do. Oh, and I'm blind. Thank yeah, you. I feel like Thank that's that could that could be the new CSI series, like CSI Aorta or something. Uh, exactly. Let's see, molecular detective. Yeah. So. I like it. Um, uh, you know, the reason why I mentioned that I'm blind is because along my journey, a lot of people were like, oh, how are you going to be a scientist? Well, you know what? I'm a scientist. So And, and bravo, because I have <laughs> tons of you. questions about that pathway for you. And uh, because I, I, I've worked with a lot of kids over the years who have gone into university and, and tried to go on science paths and have just met blockades all, all the way along. So fascinated yeah. about that story. Well, why don't, okay, so, so given that we're, we're sort of, we, we've started down the science path, um, let's start there. We'll, we'll get to, to Astro Access a little bit downstream. But so talk to us a little bit about some of the barriers that you perhaps faced when, when you, you got interested in science. So I, let, me, let me start at the beginning. I want, like, I am the child of immigrants. I was born in Maryland and... Everything seemed like, you know, you know, my parents are, are from Lebanon. They left to escape the civil war. They came here to build a life. And then, you know, everything seemed quote unquote normal until one day I started to complain about not being able to see, like, I'll never forget this, like looking at my pile of toys in my room and one minute they were there and the next minute they weren't. It took over a year or so for the doctors to figure out what was going on and for me to get diagnosed. Before that point, I had always been interested in science. I like, I'm the product of PBS. I used to sit down and watch Magic School Bus, Bill Nye the Science Guy. Like, I just am curious, was curious, hopefully will always be curious about how the world works around me. And that was just a part of who I am and still a part of who I am. And so when I was diagnosed, I could just, everything, everything shifted. Like the expectation of my future shift, shifted, how teachers interacted with me shifted. Um, it was just like, she's going to be totally blind. And what, it, what, what kind of life is she going to live? And so science was my passion and it still is my, it's, it's, I suppose my story in a nutshell is a story of somebody who just, wanted to express herself and honor what she enjoys doing. And so it's been a journey of me trying to do that, being told that there was no point, me basically 
being placed in lower level classes because I was blind, um, not being intellectually challenged, just, you know, a completely shift of expectation until one day when I was in high school, I realized, well, nobody expects me to succeed. So let me just try to challenge myself. I'm just so bored. And I went and I um, asked to go into an advanced level biology class and the the head of the science department at my school didn't want me to initially. He said I would fail. I told him I didn't care. I want to fail. Like I just, I, I was like, I have the right to, this is a public school. And he's like, okay, yeah, you do. But, and then like, I went to, I went to the classroom and the teacher was like, you don't belong here. I'm not going to change anything for you. I said, I don't care. I thought I was so bored. I was like, I'd rather sit in advanced level class and just listen then do like another lower level class. And I ended up getting one of the highest grades in the class. And the teacher actually apologized to me at the end of the year. And that was like a, a revelation moment for me. I realized how much more I could do because nobody's, nobody had any expectations of me. And so I started to explore. It really, like, I started to reignite my curiosity more. And long story short, I ended up being the first blind person to graduate with a science degree from Wellesley College. I went to Wellesley. I, I did, I said chemistry, Middle Eastern studies. I ended up being the first blind person to graduate with a graduate degree in chemistry from the University of Florida. Um, and here I am. And then, and then I went to the University of Minnesota where I did my postdoc and I had an amazing advisor who also helped me realize more things about myself and my blindness. He was somebody who saw my blindness as an asset, which was a completely like momentous turnaround point for me. And, and now I'm here in Boston in a dream job, getting to be a molecular detective, getting to be a scientist. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And I want to actually, I want to talk to you a little bit and, and get you to expand on that, this idea um, that you were just talking about this idea that actually in, in science it it benefits to have people involved who have different perspectives and how your blindness you see that as an asset to be able to see things uh, differently can you kind of speak to that a little bit more oh 100 percent I deeply believe that if you bring different individual with different stories and different backgrounds to come and solve a problem, you're going to be able to solve that problem in a way that you can't when you only have like one type of person working on it. So I, I always tell a story. When I was a graduate student, I was studying this protein. And the way that we do that is we're able to model it on the computer and the sighted person would then just watch like a little movie that you create and you can see the protein moving, literally undulating, jiggling and wiggling, official terms. Anyway, so I couldn't do that. I couldn't see the protein. So I sat there and I was like, what can I do? What could be my first interface with the data? And I realized, wait, let me mathematically plot these amino acids and see how they move because I can interface with the mathematical plot more easily than I can with just a movie of this huge protein moving. And because of that, I was able to find patterns that my sighted peers missed. So I was told that story about the unseen advantage, right? The fact that because I had to interface with the data in a different way, I was able to pick up on different patterns, patterns that other people would miss. And so what else out there are we missing? So I'm a huge advocate for people of different 
uh, abilities and different backgrounds to help solve the problems that we are facing. Well, and the real the real kind of frustrating thing about this is that for years and years and years, you know, people who are blind were you think of how many people were probably steered away from things like science um, just because people were just like, well, you, you obviously you can't do that. That's it's very visual. And without really going that extra step and saying, well, it's only it's only a visual. It's only visual is because that's how we've built it like they're. Yes, the thought of all all these barriers that we've just put in place by not making things accessible. We have all the technology. We have all the knowledge. We could make so many things accessible and we just don't. Yeah, that, and, that's exactly right. And people need to remember, like if they want different people to contribute, people like me, I'm also going to need things to be accessible to me too right you can't just expect me to be like here figure this out and there's like no tools of accessibility no 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 like we need to all have access so that we can all jump in and help solve these problems help discover new solutions help work together like we need to all be like hands on deck figuring it out together so that that leads me back to one of my questions how, how did you get access to things like textbooks, all the materials that you needed to learn what you did? did were there barriers in place? Did you have to fight through? Them 100%. Or, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there are still barriers in place. I would like, there's, I would really love for there to be a movement in which, and maybe there's something I could lead, but like <laughs> even present day journals, if I want to go read an article about the research that I'm doing, it's not accessible to me. So yeah, there are huge barriers. We are, nowhere near yet making sure people who are blind have access to all the information that they need. So growing up and throughout my entire path, there have always been barriers to access. And who knows what would have happened if I actually had full access to everything? Like where, where else, you know, where, what more could I have done, you know? And so in the future, I really hope that could change. And I really want us to consider that when moving forward as a community, as a society, for sure. Well, and that's a great segue because uh, that's why I really think that the work that, that you are also doing with uh, the Sci Access Initiative is super important. Um, yeah, so yeah. can you can you sort of talk to step us through what what the Sci Access Initiative is? So uh, so Astro Access is an initiative under Sci Access where people are realizing that because space travel is opening up to humans at large, that we need to start making space travel accessible to all from the get go from now. And so they got together a group of people with disabilities. We, they put us on a zero gravity flight and they were like, run some experiments and let's try to figure out what it takes to make space travel accessible. Obviously this is the beginning steps, right? So for me, what happened is back in the summer when I was like hearing about all these rich folks, like getting to travel into space. And I was like, oh man, I want to go into space. Literally like two weeks later, I have a friend, Dr. Cherry Wells Jensen, who called me up and was like, moon do you want to experience zero gravity? And I was like, oh, of course, I'm going to experience yeah. zero gravity. And she was like, well, we need you to do that so that you can help like design, like talk about accessibility in space. And I was like, oh my God, that's even what? Like, it, like, it was just like this amazing combo of an opportunity. So I, like, definitely I said, yes, I applied and I, I'm really lucky I was chosen. And so we got to go on a zero gravity flight where we ran experience. Um, so can, like, what was that like? What was the training like? Was it, was it extensive? Did they just throw you in the plane and just fire you up there? Like what? what kind, was kind, well, 
kind of. I mean, we were flown out to uh, LA because we flew out of Long Beach the day before. I mean, not the, like two days before. And we like met and we got to like meet one another, like discuss the flight. And then we got to actually explore the plane the day before, which was really helpful for me as a blind person. The plane, this was very fascinating to me. So what happens is you get on the plane, the back part of the plane is like regular seats that you'd find in a commercial airline. Three, three seats and then an aisle and another three seats. So there was like four rows or something like that, four or five rows in the back. And then the rest of the plane towards the front was padded on the bottom. And then the edge of like the sides of the, the other three sides are kind of curved. And so they had put like ropes so they could feel around. Um, and we all had like yoga mats. So there were 12 of us ambassadors, four of us were blind in the, in the blind low vision group, two deaf individuals and six mobility impaired. So the four blind and low vision people were in the front of the plane. And then there was like two deaf people behind us. And then the six mobility impaired people. And so the way this works is you fly over, like they flew us over the Pacific Ocean. And then when we were in position, so we're at 35,000 feet. And the way you get to experience zero gravity was the plane literally plummets. It literally free falls. As you're going down, you start to experience free fall. As the plane goes up, because it's a parabola, right? You don't want to actually hit the ocean. You go back up, and that is when you experience like double gravity. Hmm. So... I was so excited. They had wow. told everybody to like not use your legs in zero gravity. And so they had told us also that we were going to experience first Martian. Like we did 15 parabolas. So the first parabola was Martian, then two lunars, and then the rest were zero gravity. I was like so excited. I was so excited that when they told us that we should probably take a not like anti-nausea drug, I was like, what are the side effects? And they're like, oh, you might be drowsy. And I was like, no, I'm not taking anything that could make me drowsy on like the coolest day of my life. Right. <laughs> boning. <laughs> they sell a They sell a drug down there called boning in the, in the pharmacies. It's the best. Uh, I, I buy it all the time when I'm down there because you can't buy it up here. It doesn't make you drowsy. It would have been perfect. Next time. Well, space. I, yeah, well, I was fine. I didn't take anything and I wasn't nauseous. So it was all good. But like, I was just like, I don't know, like I had butterflies in my stomach. I was just like, I'm a, I'm a huge adrenaline junkie. So this was like the one of the top exciting things I've done. So we're on this plane and it's really cold. They do this intentionally too. And it's really loud, which was very uh, fascinating experience for me as a blind individual because it really m- mutes everything because it's so loud. So it's almost like I didn't really have my hearing as much like I would normally to navigate. And that was a really interesting also phenomena that occurred. So we flew out, we got, we all found our yoga mats, we laid down. And the first thing occurs, like we start, they're like, okay, we're ready. We're about to go down. This is Martian gravity. So we start to go down. I start to feel really light, like I start to feel lighter because on, on Martian gravity, you're like one third your weight. And I get so excited. I literally jump up and hit the ceiling. Like my head hits the ceiling. I'm like that excited. So I'm like, okay, Mona, like, well, I'm just like, it was, I was just like floating and jumping at the same time because I still had gravity, right? So I had, I remember telling myself very distinctly, 
to like calm down and telling myself that I will never get to experience zero gravity for the first time ever for the again right I will never get to experience zero gravity for the first time ever again so I remember like like having to calm myself down and as we were doing as we were about to do the zero gravity parabola I laid really still on my mat. I had my hands like crossed on my chest, like kind of like, like mummy pose. <laughs> I'll never forget going on like over the peak of the prep, like over the top, almost like when you're on a roller coaster and you're about to like drop. And then as soon as the plane started to drop, like my body started to float above my yoga mat and my brain flipped out. Like I just wow. couldn't, believe that no part of my body was touching anything and I remember sitting up and like standing and like feel my brain was like glitching being like okay brace yourself you're about to fall but like I wasn't actually going to fall because I was in zero gravity and then I just started to laugh and laugh and laugh like I couldn't I, I, I cannot even describe the feeling of just floating and not being tethered to anything. You know, what was fascinating for me was a, what was harsh was going back up. So mm. we would have to lay down and you get to experience 1.8 G. And so it felt like at one point, it felt like my skin was being pulled against the bones of my face. I'll never forget that. Like even lifting your arms up, you're like, whoa, like as if you had weights like weighting your arms down, which is exactly what you were feeling. And that, that to me was very bizarre. They were not letting us move around, but I really wanted to like sit up and see how that, that would feel sitting up um, and like walking in 1.8 G. But if you ask me, I would love to do that. Was it hard to breathe? No, it, I, I, for me, it was a thrill. Like for me, it was thrilling. It was unexpected especially because so there's a few things that we wanted to check out which was can a blind person find their spot again and so after i floated away right the first parabola like i was very intentional on trying to find my spot and i did and i was able to find my spot every time but what blew my mind away is that there were moments in which i was completely unaware of which direction and how i was facing i was unaware if i was upside down or right side up like completely unaware and then there were moments in which i knew exactly how i where i was and that was like it took me a few times to figure out oh i was able to like triangulate based on touching something where i was you know but when i wasn't touching anything at all like the ceiling or the floor i genuinely had no idea of how i was floating around and that that just tickled me like the complete lack of ability to know i remember one time i have some light perception i remember opening my eyes at one point and my face was right in the light fixture of the ceiling and i was startled like i had no concept of getting there and that was like amazing to me my um uh, i had two friends who wrote a book called uh, stardance uh, spider and Jeannie robinson they won a um i think it was a hugo for it and yeah. um uh, the the whole book was about zero gravity dance um, and, uh, years later, back in about 2007, uh, some arts foundation actually funded Jeannie to go up and do 
with with a professional dancer and choreograph a, 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 a zero gravity dance. So there's there's footage of that on uh, on uh, YouTube. Oh, that's really but, cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. She she came back just as giddy as you and went there just as giddy as you do. She was so thrilled. That's all. Yeah, I mean, some people I think they like it's not their favorite thing to do. Like some people did feel kind of starting to feel really nauseous towards the end. Um, I just was like, wee, wee, and like floating around and like having no idea. Like, and it was like, I don't know. It was an amazing experience. Yeah, I'm glad that they had that. rope. They definitely had ropes so that you can tether yourself to something and control like as much as you can not crashing into people. But yeah. <laughs> Now this was the this was the actual first flight, right? The first yes. time that they did this. Yeah. Are, are they planning on another another flight? I think they would definitely love to do more flights. I think the goal is eventually to send somebody up into space. I think so. That sure. would be really cool. No yeah. kidding. <laughs> well, listen, if William well, Shatner can do it, that's what I'm saying. I mean, like, look, I, I. I mean, on top of it being a lot of fun, what was also amazing is we started to ask a lot of really good questions. And I think, you know, we're, we're going to be able to publish some research about this. Even me, like, I mean, a lot of us were really worried, like, how can a blind person find their way back? You know what? It was a lot easier than any of us thought it would be, which was a fascinating, you know, discovery. But then it's like, what else can we do? And what can we design? And um, what devices would be useful? Like, there's so many questions. Why was I utterly like unaware of which direction I was at some points, but completely aware at other points? I still don't have a f very clear answer on that. So I think there's still a lot more research to be done. And I think that would be fantastic. The, the other thing that, though, the other part of that that I want to talk about is is the, the Psy access part. So because I, I really do feel like the, the one of the huge, huge um messages i think to come out of all of this is the message to send a blind youth to say look science is not off off the table for for anybody um really it's it's these barriers that we put in place science accessibility is very important to me it is a big part of what i value and a, a big part of my personal mission is that i want to see more blind scientists in this world, I wanna see more blind individuals if they have the passion for science to follow that passion. And so I personally have created a, a website, monamacar.com, but I have a whole blind scientist tools page on my website where I outline every tool I've ever used to do my science from, from a glue gun to Play-Doh to pipe cleaners, all the way to screen readers and how I navigate a conference, how I teach a class, how I apply for the job, like everything I talk about all the things I've done, but I also make sure that I make myself available. So I have a place where people can contact me and I have people contacting me if they ever need any help regarding blindness in their journey. It's really important to me. And I always try to make time for them on Fridays. And then on top of that, I uh, worked on creating an accessible blind STEM curriculum. And it's not just accessible for blind individuals, but it's also cost accessible so we did this um we created this curriculum and we were able to implement it in a summer camp in lebanon where we had blind kids from the ages of 6 to 26 like there were lebanese syrian refugee and palestinian refugees 
And for two weeks, we just did science experiments at a really low cost so that they can go home. And if they wanted to do some of those experiments at home, they could. And it was fantastic. And it was amazing. I really do want to talk to you about the YouTube channel because uh, I did take a look at uh, a few episodes today and I was transfixed. I love it. I love the way that it's produced and I love the, the idea of it. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the YouTube channel and how it came about and you know, what, was, what that, that's been like um, producing those episodes? Okay, yeah. So Planes, Trains and Canes is an idea that started when I applied, actually started before I applied to the Holman Prize. It was actually when I was asked to be a judge. Again, there's a, a really common theme in my life, which is accessibility, access to things. Um, that you know, people should have the right to access different things. So in 2019, when I was applying to become faculty, I wanted to have fun and I applied to the Holman Prize put out by the Lighthouse of the Blind in San Francisco, where they give $25,000 to any blind person with an ambitious idea. So I applied with this idea that I wanna show a blind person traveling to five different cities around the world using only public transportation when they land. And this was really important to me, the public transportation piece, because public transport is access. Like growing up in Boston, having the MBTA here was for me a symbol of freedom, a symbol of access, a symbol of being able to explore. Um, it's a big part of who I am. So I wanted to know how are those systems like in other cities around the world? How would it be like for me to travel on my own and explore the world? And so for planes, trains, and canes, you get to see me travel to Johannesburg, London, Istanbul, Singapore, and Tokyo. All episodes are audio described and closed captioned because I want them to be fully accessible. And you get to see me experience all sorts of adventures from arguing with people to befriending people to just like exploring technology in Tokyo. It, it was, yeah, it was, it was awesome, so. And so how long did it take to sort of produce and, and film the, all, the whole series? So the traveling bit was pretty much done in two weeks. It was actually amazing. We got the funding so that it would be the funding for the year of 2019 and 2020. And I did all the traveling in December of 2019. So it was like two months before the pandemic hit. Um, that was like uncanny timing. Yeah. And then it took a while to edit. And so I didn't even learn. So when we started off, it was just me and my friend, Natalie Guzzi, who was the camera woman. Um, and I chose her specifically because whoever had to come along with me had to be, I mean, she had to just trust in me. She never double checked my directions. She genuinely just followed me. We had a rule whenever, I, obviously I was on camera, I didn't know where she was. I couldn't hear her, I couldn't see her. I just had to trust that she was able to follow me. And she did. And she never like, she never questioned, like she just followed me when I got lost. She got lost with me when I found my way. She found, like, she just did a really great job being um, an observer. And so many people would have such a hard time especially with a blind person leading, the, you know, at the helm, so to speak. And so we, we did the videotaping at the end of 2019, and then we would produce one episode like per month. 
like January, February, March. Like, so it took, it took the good part of 2020 to finish up, like releasing all the episodes. And the editor was amazing. He is still, we're still meeting. We're still trying to get funding for season two. Uh, we have some backing right now from MAVV, which is a Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. They also backed me um, for Astro Access, which is amazing. And we're hoping to go for season two in the summer and in, in the in the winter. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, it's it, you know, and it's so fascinating to watch too because I really feel like in watching you transverse all of these different environments, it really does shine a light on things that like small things that would would take care of accessibility that would just need to be in place. I thought it was fascinating um, where there's footage of you and you're sort of walking an airport concourse and you're sort of, you're looking for your gate. And as you're sort of going into the, the area, the gate area where there's, where there's all the seats and stuff, of course that area is carpeted mm -hmm. and the, the concourse uh, is not. And so you're kind of able to sort of tell where you were based on the, the texture of the flooring, which I thought was really interesting, but it also made me go, well, wow, you know, how easy would, would it be for them to just put down textured strips um, along that concourse that would lead like right to, right to the, desk. The, different, the different gates or the, or the desk? Yeah, yeah. like that would, that's certainly not high cost and it's certainly cheaper than trying to do things like, oh, let's put in indoor beacons or let's, you know, whatever, whatever high tech solution there would be. So I thought that that was such a really interesting exercise. And I think important for people to sort of watch to sort of because, you know, if we can fix the easy things to make the world a little bit more accessible, you know, that certainly goes a long way. And it also brings light to the fact that if we thought about accessibility as we're creating a lot of these spaces, whether it be, you know, an airport or you're designing a city like from the get-go just like we are with astro access that it would just be like an easy implementation to be part of the process from the beginning 100 percent. and you know i have to echo what ryan was saying earlier in just watching you and just how fearless you are and just like just going in because like I, I i don't have a ton of of experience flying um i have a bit um, but I find airports like really, really freaky and, you know, and I'm, and I'm a sighty, like I, you know, and I totally get disorientated. I'm, I'm like worried about, oh my God, I got to find my gate. I don't know where, where the heck I am. I don't know what direction I'm going in. Am I going to miss my plane? Uh, they're like, all these things are just make it so stressful, but you watch this video and you just look like cool as a cucumber. You're just like, oh, I'm just going to go find my gate. Were there ever any uh sort of nail biting moments were you like underneath well, it all like were you freaked out well let me tell you i think you you bring up something really important right you said i look i seemed fearless i think what happened was and this is something that i talk about i had like a self-exploration part in this whole journey which is i learned that there's an element of mental freedom i had to reach a point in which i was okay with truly getting lost which meant I had to give myself this concept that I had a lot, enough time to take my time because everything in my, in my belief is solvable with enough time. So if I, I remember landing in Atlanta and being like, I only had two hours till my next flight. I remember giving myself a pep talk 
it's okay, Mona. You know, you can go try to find your gate on your own. It's going to be like great when you, when you do, but if you don't, that's okay. If you miss your flight, because then there's another flight. It will, you know, that's the, you know, be true to the story and give yourself space to breathe. And that freed me. That freed me. That was amazing to me. I feel like it allowed me to explore. Yeah. So, so during that, that process though, there were, were there things that surprised you that were either maybe easier than you thought it would yeah, be? Yeah, hundred percent. For example, Atlanta airport. I remember when I was going to Johannesburg, which was my first trip. I was really like, I, I was anxious. I didn't know how things were going to unfold. I really wanted to challenge myself by not like just relying on someone taking me. Um, I, I genuinely thought there was a huge chance I would get lost in the Atlanta airport, but I didn't get lost. I got to my gate and I got my, to my gate with plenty of time to spare. In the meantime, I did get on the wrong train. I did go to the wrong direction, but everything turned out okay. So um, that surprised me. Well, it you, also, you it got also, one up on me because yeah. I, I got lost in the Atlanta airport. <laughs> Like I figured out the pattern and I also, I remember my mom would always say like, if you can ask, you wouldn't get lost. Right. So like, there's like an Arabic idiom like that. And so I remember thinking like, what's the worst case? There's a million people around me. I can literally be like, Hey, where am I? Hey, where am I? Like, where's, where's the, you know, concourse D. Um, and that's literally what I did. And I remember realizing, Oh, there's, the sound of more people here. So I think there must be like um, where the escalators are or like really paying attention to sounds. When I had to narrate all the clues I was picking up on, I I didn't realize normally how much I was deducing subconsciously. That also was like a flash, like a flashbulb moment for me. Like, wow, I am kind of picking up on the sound of the escalator as a clue. I am picking up on the sound of tile over carpeting i am picking up on the smell of like burgers or whatever like <laughs> and like but saying them out loud was kind of amazing for me and i feel like it even honed my navigation skills better mona during your travels at any point did you ever have strangers that sort of came up to you and offered assistance whether you wanted it or not or do you oh, think that so that did happen quite a bit yes i mean i had strangers so I really don't mind when people ask if I need help. I'll tell you where I get annoyed. When people don't want to listen to the answer. So if I say no, thank you, and they're like, no, 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 that's when I get annoyed. But if, if I say, okay, yeah, sure, I'd love some help. Like, um, oh, where's so-and-so or whatever. Like, that, like it, it's good either way. I just want to make sure that I'm being heard. That's number one. Number two in London, it was really, I don't know if anybody saw the London episode. It was a very challenging place for me. I got asked many a time where my caretaker was, and that was very insulting. I cut all those out, actually, because wow. <laughs> I didn't want to wow. just, like, show London in particular light. But then I got into an argument in the London Underground. All I wanted to know was where the train was, and then they were like, you can't travel by yourself. How can you do this? And I was like, what do you mean I can't travel by myself? <laughs> like, wow. Yeah. You should definitely watch that scene. It caused so much debate, like so much debate on Reddit on for that scene. Um, there's a lot of comments under that video. Yeah. 
I find you... London uh, a particularly difficult city to navigate just because of, every, you know, every 10 feet you go, the, the name of the street changes. I mean, there's that. But, like, I personally, I mean, I was willing to take, the, take on that challenge. I wasn't that intimidated by the London Underground. You know, it's almost like, like, how lost can you really get? There's only so many, like, it's, it's you're on a line. There's certain stops. There are people around you. Like, I wasn't really that intimidated by it but the people when i got to heathrow when i got to the stop to leave the airport they just were they were relentless they were like you can't do this on your own didn't you find it challenging like sort of being in that editing position and trying to decide like i think you kind of touched upon it when you said that you didn't want to show london in that light but sort of was there any kind of editorial struggle that you went through in terms of maybe you should show certain aspects of that well, and, and tell that story. I didn't. So I did show certain aspects. Like I kept that debate, that argument probably got the most attention. And I thought that was enough from an editorial perspective. Other than that, not really. Like I really like the stories were very clear to me because I had a certain mission, right? My goal wasn't to necessarily like poo poo any city or something like that. My goal was to truly try to have people think, to start thinking about issues they might've not thought about before. And so how can I do that the best way is to, to show the stories as they unfold and to not make them so negative if they're not really that negative, right? So I tried to stay as honorable to the truth, but I also didn't want to overwhelm like all the bad, like London was very emotionally challenging for me. It was It was the most challenging city emotionally out of all the five cities i thought before i went on this trip that london would be easy because i spoke the language and that istanbul and tokyo would be hard because i don't speak the languages but it was like the opposite tokyo was so easy for me and istanbul even too and london was very hard for me and i think it showed that that showed the truth showed well, and that's such an interesting exercise too, B, because there's there's a couple things going on when you're you're in a new city and you're looking to take uh, public transit, because you know there certainly is the inaccessibility of said transit system, but then there's also sort of the attitudes of the population and the people around you and the commuters. Um, yeah. So, given all of that. And maybe you've kind of already spoken to that. So London was sort of the most difficult. Was was Tokyo sort of the one of the the easiest? It was when I was on public transport. So Tokyo blew my mind on the technology that they had implemented. It was it wasn't like complicated technology, but they just had like little sounds that played. If you're near their bathroom, there was like running water, water sound. So you knew you were near the bathroom. Uh, if you're near the exit in an underground, like it, there was like a Tweety Bird, right? So you knew you were like near the exit. Every train line had a different musical tone. The cane guides, which are grooves in the ground for your cane as a blind person, led you from the door of the train to, for example, all the way up into the sidewalk and to the door of the bus that you wanted to take. Wow. I mean, at the level of detail, they had talking crosswalk sounds 
that were different for north south versus east west right and i have to tell you i didn't do any research about any of these places i also wanted to be authentic about me experiencing these infrastructures naturally right and so every city i went to i didn't know exactly like how things were going to unfold i intentionally didn't really do research i tried to figure it out on the spot but tokyo was so smooth I figured out everything they were trying to do. And you can see this unfold, by the way, on camera. And on top of it, I never felt like I needed to use my eyesight. Wow. And that blew my mind. What What about sort of, you know, sort of attitudinal barriers? Was, was any given city sort of more challenging than any others? Yeah, London attitudinally for me was yeah. challenging. I mean, there was like the caretaker concept. It was, I, you know, I, I I was kind of hesitant to like, I was like, is this just in my head? Like, am I like, am I experiencing this more because I'm a foreigner? Like, I don't, I, I didn't know what was happening until I met up with a blind friend of mine um, in London. And we had a really honest conversation. And he goes, in London, they'll take you across the street thinking they're helping you. Yeah. But like you never wanted to go across the street, <laughs> like they just like drag you across the street. And then he's like, when he went to San Francisco, he's like, there they leave you alone until you ask, and then they'll help you. And so it's just a different cultural perspective. People there didn't know it was like either zero or a hundred, and it was kind of bizarre. But I figured it out. I figured out that if I really wanted an answer from people, that I need to be like a little bit more aggressive in my question asking that um, I'll figure it out, you know? And I end like, I, I really love London as a city and I just love all the different lines. And I've, I've, I've been to London now enough that I actually have their underground pretty much memorized, but you know, it's quite annoying when somebody comes up to you and they're just like, where's your caretaker? And all you just wanted to know is this, is this going to London bridge? Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's a strange question to ask too, because it's not like the RNIB hasn't been active over there and, you know, education campaigns and guide dogs, canes. It's not like blind people are yeah, but, uh, not yeah. seen, but, but th that is a strange question. Where's your caretaker? Why would there be that assumption? Strange. Yeah. They just did it. It's almost like it's somebody should be taking care of the responsibility of you. It's it's like, why are you asking me? I don't know. It's It was a bizarre, again, not everybody was like this. I do highlight some pretty awesome, like kind-hearted individuals that were, con you know, very, very awesome. But my, my friend, my camera woman, Natalie Guzzi said to me that she saw more people walking around, more blind people walking around in Tokyo than she saw in all the other cities combined. Wow. Yeah, so it that. tells you when the infrastructure is there, there's a difference. Wow. So it's been quite a, quite a couple of years for you. Uh, sounds like you've been, you've done so much and, and from the sounds of it really learned a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to explore more of the world. Um, if we get funding for season two, I want to go to Stockholm. They advertise that their public transportation is fully accessible, which intrigues me, but I also want to go to other like, uh, other parts of the world that we haven't gone to, like South America. And um, so we'll see. How about the wilds of Canada? Vancouver's nice these, these days. 
Uh, how's the public transportation there? Maybe I'll come one day. It's Doing probably not very good, so come and tell us how to fix it. <laughs> I mean, my dream, <laughs> my dream is for people who are transportation design, like designers, I don't know if that's what they're called, but transit people yep. or like city or urban planners um, to watch planes, trains, and canes while, while they're thinking about designing something from scratch to consider all the issues that I bring up, at least from my perspective. And maybe down the line, playing strands and canes becomes something bigger. We don't just focus on me. We're bringing somebody maybe on a wheelchair, um, somebody who's dead, like different different people, mm-hmm. and see how their story kind of unfolds. Yeah, and that's exactly why it's such an important exercise because you're absolutely right. I mean, something something as fundamental as um, public transit uh is is so important to to people's lives who you know you have to navigate that on a on a daily basis but listen if if you do season two you have to promise to come back and talk to us about it oh i would love to i would love to let's hope this happens and i really want um plant change canes to get a lot of traction um, it's already been getting a lot of mobility, orientation, mobility instruction instructors to watch and show their students. I've had a lot of comments from blind individuals telling me that they feel venerated, um, which was really cool to hear. I have one more question. Okay, go for it, my friend. After Apple Maps let you down in Johannesburg, have you ever gone back to it? No. Had <laughs> a girl. <laughs> I mean, I. Oh my god! There we go. Did you? I had to ask. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No. Apple Maps is not the best, but um, did anybody see in Turkey? Like sometimes even Google Maps ends up like glitching, or like in London, I just it would just be like, uh oh, like can't find this. Oh, like it would just glitch on you, and you're like, oh no, my technology is failing. What do I do? And then you're like, okay, I can ask people. <laughs> Just trying to figure that out. Well, and I think that's a, a an excellent thing to rely on, right? Is we we know we can't rely on our technology twenty four seven. So being able to have the skills and the confidence in your own abilities makes a huge difference. Yeah. And re- recognizing also that you do not really need to speak the language. When I was in Turkey, that totally happened to me. Like I couldn't rely on my technology. And I was standing there and I don't speak Turkish. And it was, there's some pretty like heartwarming scenes when I'm just like asking this total stranger how to go to like Bashiktash. And then, and then the guy was like talking, talking, talking. And I was like, I don't understand. And then, like, I literally put up my hands up like this. And he's just like, like says like something like to like keep me there. And then calls like over a bus driver and this, and like gets me on this bus for free. And then he's like, Bashiktash. I'm like, okay. Like, I mean, I mean, Away I go. It's just amazing how you can still connect with other human beings when mm. you don't even speak the language. That's very cool. Well, listen, I'm ex- I le- I'm just excited to get through the rest of the the episodes that I haven't gotten through yet. So, um, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, please like and subscribe. Everybody, like 100%. Honestly, like anybody's listening to this, like seriously, go check it out. They're really, really good, super interesting, yep. well-produced. And uh, yeah, you guys did a, a fantastic job on them. Thank Tell you. I friends. have to give a shout out to Benjamin Ted Jimenez, who's our editor and he's in the Philippines and he's just like edited all of them. I think he did an amazing job. It is, 
one of my favorite parts about that project was the storytelling aspect. It's like after you like have four or five days of straight like footage and you did not have a story in advance, right? This is like life unfolding. It's like what parts of those four or five days do you show and how do you tell that story? That was like an amazing challenge and it was a cool experiment to learn. Well, where the heck can people find you and, or, and where can they find the YouTube channel? Okay. So if you want to get in touch with me, go to monamincara.com. That's M-O-N-A-M-I-N-K-A-R-A.com. You can contact me there. There's also a projects tab to see all my projects and the blind scientist tab. But if you want to check out planes, trains, and canes, go to YouTube, type planes, trains, and canes and like and subscribe. I also have uh, the Blind Traveler channel on YouTube. And then all my science talks are also on YouTube under Mona Mankara. I, I have a lot of things going on, but please just contact me, especially if something strikes you. Well, listen, we want to thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us. Uh, this has been a lot of fun and fascinating. And please, please come back uh, soon and talk to us about season two. Would love Absolutely. to thank you so much. And um, maybe one day I can tell you more about my science too. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Totally. 100%. Yeah. Combined lab. I should plug that. Also, if you're interested and you are a budding computational chemist or bioengineer, um, check out my website, minkaracombinelab.com, where my research is all there. So that's M I N K A R A C O M B I N E L A B.com. I have a feeling that website would probably melt my brain. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it, it can, it can use more, but like, it just has my group and the research that we're doing. And I, I don't know. It's, it's something that I really love and I can't wait to grow more. So. How do you spell pulmonary? What was it? <laughs> pulmonary surfactant. I'm actually not good at spelling. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just lungs Spell check. F7 <laughs> on your keyboard. I know, right? <laughs> touché, touché. All right. Thank you so much, Mona. And uh, it's been a delight talking to you. And uh, we will we'll stay in touch and let's do this again. Thank you so much for having me and have a wonderful day. You too, Mona. Take care. Wonderful. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, Mona. Holy cow. Oh, full of energy. Oh, full of energy. Holy it's amazing. Moly. Wow. Yeah. Wow. On fire. I keep yep. telling you guys, stop booking people who make me feel like an underachiever. <laughs> in terms of... Yeah, she went to Johannesburg and all these other countries, and Rob went to Subway for lunch today. <laughs> yeah, I, know. Yeah. I just love that she was bored in school and she did the exact opposite of what I did, which was screw these guys and slack off. She she went and she said, well, I'm yeah. going to find stuff that interests myself. And she went for it. Oh, I, that, that never even occurred to me. No. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. And it, it is like I can't even I mean, and we didn't even really talk about it that much, but that must be so incredibly challenging to follow that path um in a in a a school of science that there's just no accessibility well and, and this is this is one of the reasons i'm fascinated about her story is, is you know i i know 
uh, you know, I can think of one, one instance right off the top of my head of a girl who went to a particular university near here. Uh, I'm not going to badmouth them by name, but um, uh, she was basically told, oh, you want to take chemistry? Well, no, but you're blind, so no, you should take something else. How about philosophy or, you know, something like that? They basically just tried to push her off to, to a course other than the one that she was actively trying to pursue, which is disgusting. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's it's a real shame because for some people like science, that's that's their calling. That's what they're good at. That's their thing. And the fact that how many how many people have not been able to follow that path for no other reason than materials aren't made accessible. Um, I mean, there just really is there's no no excuse um, for having things like inaccessible uh, materials or even like feeling like, oh, you know, there's only one path to you know, you, you, it's, this has to be a visual medium, uh, because clearly that's not the case. So, um, I think that that's the really important message to take away that, that, you know, kids that are, that are growing up that are interested in sciences, it's, it's absolutely a lucrative path for them. Well, and Mona did design an accessible STEM curriculum, right? So maybe yeah. we can share that and use it as a baseline and education yeah. systems can start changing, yeah, evolving. Absolutely. 100% for sure, you know, and since I mean, she's changing the world like she's she's trying to make science accessible. She's trying to make transit in different <laughs> cities accessible, tra international travel accessible. And Rob said no tomatoes. <laughs> I'm, I'm down to one cup of coffee, though. <laughs> sorry, I'm throwing you under the bus. I'm sorry. <laughs> What, they didn't put tomatoes on your Subway sandwich? No, I, no forget it. <laughs> I'm trying to get my acid reflux under control, and I'm trying to do a bunch oh, of stuff. Oh, yeah, that's a big one for me, of... too. Red wine's worse, though. <laughs> All right, let's get out of here before All right. get nasty. Yeah. Uh, hey, Liz. Yes, Rob. Uh, where can people find us? They can find us online at atbanter.com. Hey, they can also drop us an email if they so desire at cowbell at atbanter.com. And if they're one of those socially uh, media types, they can join us on Twitter or Facebook as well if they're so inclined. Yeah, although I have to, I have to say, uh, I have to give a, a shitty gram to Facebook because I don't know what's going on, but me and Ryan here in Canada cannot uh, cannot get on our Facebook page, uh, but Liz down there in the U.S. of A. can absolutely access it. So I don't know what the deal with that is. Has she poached our Facebook? I don't know. Maybe I was able I to post last week, that. but I didn't even think of that. Ryan, she does have the keys to the. That's right. You gave her the keys to the castle. Uh oh. Uh, so maybe she did do some sort of a hack job. Maybe. What do we really know about Liz, really? Right. Next really? comes the takedown. Yeah. Hey, hey, exactly. it's all. I blame it all on Meta. <laughs> yeah, Meta. Whatever that is. Uh, I really, you know. Okay, I won't even get into that. Let's, let's I won't even go. get into the rant. But God, I really hope that. Please, please, Meta fail. Please, do not. Ark May, Zuckerberg, Zay. Ark May, Ark May Zucker. <laughs> Uckerberg's, eh? <laughs> <laughs> 
anyways, Mark, uh, if you're out there, uh, could you please fix our Facebook page so Ryan can post to it, please? Thank please, you. Please, please. Uh, otherwise, anyways. Anyways, uh, we're going over to MySpace. No. <laughs> MySpace and Google, Google Plus. And, and we're right. all getting a video camera and doing TikToks. There you Remember go. when people used to call that it Spacebook? Spacebook. No, I don't. <laughs> but that, that would be, that's cooler. Quick, get the domain, spacebook.com. Facebook. Oh, you know that's gone. That's yeah. gone. That's been gone. Yep. Uh, where were we? Dinner time. We do the socials? Yeah, we did the socials. Okay, yep. well, that's it. We're out of here. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening in. Of course, big thanks to Mona. Please go check out her channel, Planes, Trains, and Canes. It's very cool. And uh, we you could use the spread the word of accessibility. We will see everybody next week. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H dot com. Or call us toll free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com. 